Come on along and listen to the lullaby of Broadway. Broadway is different things to different people. For some, it's a night out. For others, a dream come true, a place to see their name in lights and feed off the applause of an enthusiastic audience. Good morning. I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. On this morning's show, theater critic Leonard Jacobs on his new book, Historic Photos of Broadway, New York Theater, 1850 to 1970. And later, a glimpse into the life of one of Broadway's biggest stars ever, Ethel Merman. Glad you're with us for Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. A new book tells the history of Broadway through historic photographs. It's authored by a man who says he was born singing show tunes. Leonard Jacobs is the national theater editor of Backstage and first string theater critic for Backstage and the New York Press. He joins me here in the WFUV studios to talk about his latest project. Leonard Jacobs, good morning. Good morning. How many photographs are in this book? 240. 240 photographs exploring Broadway's history. Where did you get them? They're all from the Billy Rose Theater Division, New York Public Library for the Performing Arts, commonly known as the Lincoln Center Library, Mm -hmm. but that is the technical name, and it's the name that's on the book. Um, The book is essentially, it's it's a history of Broadway, both pictorially and with a lot of text. And then there are a few of the 240 that come from, you know, other areas of, you know, far-flung areas of the New York Public Library system, but principally it's the Billy Rose Collection. What prompted you to get involved with this project? Answering an ad on Craigslist. Really? Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yes. Tell (laughs) me about this. I was idly browsing, well, I mean, what does one do but idly browse Craigslist? Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, And I saw an advertisement for a theater historian, which is bizarre. I mean, no one advertises for the, you know, it's not like you go to the theater historian bulletin board and look at all the jobs. There's you know not what one? I mean? No, no, maybe we should, maybe we'll start that. And I saw this ad and my initial impulse was, oh, well, there's so many ac- academicians out there and people that have published more than I have and I'm more journalism and I'm a critic and all the, you know, all these other excuses. And I slept on it. And the next day I got up and I thought, you know, there are plenty of historians out there dumb enough to answer this ad. I want to be as dumb as they are. Um, I'm smiling as I say this. Uh, and so I answered the ad, and to my astonishment, the publisher, his name is Todd Bodorf of uh, Turner Publishing in Nashville, uh, called me, and we had a great conversation. He told me about the project. I knew of the collection anyway because from other projects and various and sundry activities, I had already used the collection. So I think that was helpful in terms of a learning curve. You know, what is it? How do you use it? And so I got the gig. How time-consuming was it to sift through all of these photographs? When I came to the project... I was introduced to a digital library, which NYPL is just abbreviated that way, has online. Um, So you could go and plug in a search for, let's just say for the sake of argument, uh, Sarah Bernhardt. Mm -hmm. And it will return, you know, 10, 100, 150 images. Uh, Those images have a physical counterpart within the library. But I was provided at the point at which I was contracted for the book with a series of binders with printouts from the digital library. Ultimately, I used the binders I was given as the basis for the for the book. Um, chose to tell the Broadway story 
at least volume one of the Broadway story. And then I spent a great deal of time within the collection, working with the collection, choosing all of the other images to to fill out the tale. This book takes us as far back as 1850. That's what we think. The first image is of Edwin Booth, who was a you know, colossally famous 19th century, uh, mostly Shakespearean actor, and his father, Junius Brutus Booth, who was similarly uh, very well known. Now, those names may not mean anything to the population at large. However, Edwin Booth's brother was a gentleman named John Wilkes Booth, who assassinated President Lincoln. Mm. Uh, The photo is of Edwin Booth as a kid, or as what we think is a sort of a teenager, um, and his father. And it's a it's a really lovely photo, um, you know, the father and son connection, the two generations of actors connection. But we think given Booth's birth date, which uh, I think is 1830 uh, something or other, um, if, if he was, say, 15 or 16 in the photo, it puts the beginning of the book roughly around 1850. What I, I will add, though, it's, it's kind of significant that um, – the number 1850 is not significant in in and of itself, but what I wanted to get at is that what we think of as Broadway as uh, not so much a thoroughfare, but as a brand, if you will, didn't really exist quite the way we think of it in 1850. Mm-hmm. Broadway, a whole different place. Actually, New York City, a whole different place. Absolutely. Well, you know, the theater district wasn't in Times Square until you know, really starting the beginning of the of the twentieth century, um, so this really takes us back to when theaters were in uh, present day Soho and you know around the Financial District and coming up around Union Square and then what was called Ladies Mile, which is Fourteenth to Twenty Third Street along Broadway. How much has Broadway changed through the years as we go back to eighteen fifty? in terms of infrastructure. I'm sure there are a lot of buildings that you have captured in this book that simply don't exist anymore. Going through the book and including so many images of interiors and exteriors of theaters that have been demolished over the past, say, 100 years, um, you begin to have your level of consciousness raised about how much we've lost. Now, I should also say that there's a great deal that we still have. You know, there are whatever, 39 or 40 Broadway theaters, many of which are a century old or approaching a century old. But certainly downtown, below 34th Street, below 23rd uh, Street, below Union Square, virtually no traces remain of the structures that, that used to be there. There are a few. I don't think the theater itself has changed as an experience. I think people still thrill to the idea of live performance. They love that give and take with an actor across a, you know, an unobstructed open space in which a story is being told. But in terms of the playhouses in which these um, events take place, I think a great deal has changed and not always for the better. Which do you think are the greatest losses? The Empire, uh, which was on 40th Street, built in 1893 and demolished 60 years later. Um, I would say about a block away from that was the casino, which um, wasn't a particularly important house in terms of the productions that took place there, although there were a few significant ones. Um, But it had this gorgeous Moorish exterior, and there's nothing like it today at all. The closest that we come is what is the uh, the Hirschfeld on 45th Street, which has some Moorish uh, traces. Um, 
I would also say early in the book, there's a photo of a structure called the Academy of Music. Now, on the site where the Academy of Music was, uh, is today the Con Edison building. It's like Irving Place and 14th Street. Um, but the Academy of Music was the, you know, for lack of a better phrase, the Carnegie Hall of the of the mid-19th century. And it was a beautiful building inside and outside. I had a lot of trouble. I came across a great interior photo of it. And I, I couldn't decide whether I wanted the interior or the exterior. I chose the exterior, you know, because I guess I flipped a coin. Um, but I think those uh, houses, it, it's a shame that we demolished those. And plus one more, that would be the Morosco. You may know that the, the Helen Hayes, the Morosco, the Bijou, uh, and I think one or, one or more other theaters over on Broadway and 45th Street were demolished in the early 80s to make way for that great monument to concrete, the Marriott Marquis Hotel. Um, and the Morosco was a particularly beloved house, and it housed, you know, great hits and, you know, great work. And it was a shame that uh, the landmarking statute at that moment in time um, didn't protect more theaters. The, the the upside of this story is that most of the Broadway theaters are landmark protected now, and we will probably not lose any more of them. Which theater that still exists today would you say that people must see? Regardless of what show is inside, you have to go and to see this theater. Two of them. The new Amsterdam, which is where Mary Poppins is playing, which was restored by the Disney folks. And, you know, you know, theater folk can say what they like about Disney, but they did a beautiful job with the new Amsterdam. And it's a breathtaking house um, inside. Um, And the Lyceum, which is uh, on uh, 45th Street, uh, east of uh, west of 6th Avenue. Um, And that's both the and there's there's an exterior photo in the in the book um, with it's great. It's got a little horse and carriage at the bottom of the photo. So you get a sense of the scale of the of the theater. Let's talk about the shows that you capture in this book. One photograph that caught me was a picture of Adonis. Is that Henry Dixie? I believe so. Yeah, this was at the time one of the longest running shows. That's correct. And, you know, he's interesting because he stands as a paragon of what masculinity was perceived to be in the late 19th century. He looks like a, uh, a Greek god in this photo. And my guess, it's a black and white photo like everything else in the book. But my guess is he's wearing some sort of whitish pancakey makeup. And he's got this sort of, you know, drapery around his, around his arm and this enormous belt around his midsection. Was it largely tragedies and comedies on Broadway in the early days? I would imagine we didn't see many musicals. The musical as we know it hadn't really been born yet. You had, uh, you know, operettas and and burlesque, and there were other sort of hybrid terms like burletta and opera bouffe, and I don't really think I want to get into what all the technical definitions for those are. But musical entertainment, i.e. song and dance numbers, uh, costumes, pretty girls, he-men, you know, all of that did exist in the 19th century, but just not in the form that we know it today with, um, ideally, um, a narrative that's connected through dialogue and song, you know, and uh, movement and uh, dance interchangeably and all that. But no, there was plenty of, there were plenty of musicals. Um, when we say tragedy and comedy in the 19th century, what we're really talking about are variations on melodrama and the well-made play. Um, modern tragedy, if you will, modern comedy really is an is a early 20th century evolution. Are there any shows captured in a photograph that you have in this book that you simply wish that you had seen? You oh were there. Gosh. Oh, boy. There are a lot of them. I'll give you a time period. The section of the book with the most number of images uh, covers the 20s. 
the O'Neill plays, um, some of the more fantastical works, uh, you know, R.U.R. about about robots, um, things like that. I would have loved to have seen those staged. Like, how were they staged? What did the scenery look like? Some of the Theater Guild plays, Men in White. I would have loved to have seen the Lunts on stage. There are a lot of photos of uh, Alfred Lunt and Lynn Fontaine, the greatest acting team of the 20th century. Um, and I think I would have liked to have seen Helen Hayes in Victoria Regina, which was her signature role in the 30s. And I would have liked to have seen the plays of Clyde Fitch, who was the, arguably the nation's most important, controversial, um, picked on, criticized, and certainly economically successful playwright and director uh, in the years immediately before Eugene O'Neill. What do we see as far as costume design through the years in these photographs? There's a photo of Amphitryon 38, which is perhaps not a title people remember today. It was 1937. It was a, a comedy adapted by S.N. Behrman, who's a great American playwright who's somewhat neglected. And you see a photo of the Lunt. You see the drapery and just the, you know, the headwear and the, you know, this fake beard that Alfred Lunt is wearing. And the photo has such gorgeous detail. And you sort of wonder, A, how they moved in these costumes because they look like they're either feather light or weigh 28 million pounds. And also just the design is really crisp. As a critic, for me, really good costume design puts you in a context and can even make commentary on character, story, you know, place, time, setting. There are a number of photos in the book that I think um, do that. There was an actor named Burgess Meredith. Most people remember him as the Penguin on Batman and also from one of the Rocky, one or more of the Rocky movies. Mm -hmm. um, in the 30s, uh, he was a, a very well-known actor. He did a play called Winterset in 1935. And it's this almost like pre-noirish photo of him with the hat on, but this great suit, which is just a little bit like what we would today <laughs> sound like I'm a costume designer. It's just a little bit ill fitting. It's almost like post zoot suit, but in the photo, he's got the collar turned up a little bit. And so the photo, it's lit in such a way that he casts this large shadow. And he's also very young in this photo. And so all of those things combined, you know, sort of reflect back on the cut of the suit, and it tells you something about how dark the play was. Even though the costume, quote-unquote, isn't particularly elaborate, it's really interesting to look at. I don't know that we would wear a suit like that today, but it, like, it takes you right to the middle of the, of the 30s, and it tells you something, I guess, about you know the character that he was playing, and maybe a little bit about the play. You mentioned Burgess Meredith, of course. The book includes images of many Broadway stars, from Ethel Merman to Carol Channing. Which are your favorite photos of these Broadway stars? There's a photo of Lorette Taylor from the original production of The Glass Menagerie, which is a, you know, an indelible performance that 60 years later people still talk about. And she's got this semi-crazed look in her eye um, in the role of Amanda Wingfield. And um, I love that photo. There's a photo of um, Marlon Brando and Kim Hunter and Jessica Tandy from the original uh, production of A Streetcar Named Desire. The looks on their faces, it looks like a shot from the film. It just takes my breath away. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm George Boraki. 
We're talking this morning with Leonard Jacobs about his new book, Historic Photos of Broadway. It includes 240 photographs that help to show the evolution of theater in New York starting in the mid-1850s. More of our chat in just a moment. We talked about costume design. Now, clearly, set design has changed quite a bit through the years. There's a lot of flash on many Broadway shows today. I would imagine there was some more simplicity years ago. There was more simplicity, but there's always been an appetite for the spectacle. You know, it's all about technology and how a spectacle changed. In the 30s, there was a a musical called Jumbo at a theater that no longer stands called the Hippodrome. It was either the largest uh, Broadway theater ever built or at least one of the and you you get a sense of the enormity of the stage because there's an elephant, you know, it's called Jumbo. There's an elephant on stage, and the elephant is maybe like one-fifteenth of the size of the photo. And there are all of these, you know, acrobats and singers and dancers and performers all over the photo, not just on the stage level, but, you know, 20, 30, 60, 80 feet up in the air. So, no, in the 30s, for example, you couldn't have uh, rising and falling chandeliers or helicopters or whatever, but you could do plenty of things to give, you know, to, to sort of dazzle the eye. And people did that quite regularly. There is not a photo in this book of this particular event, but the playwright slash director slash producer David Belasco, for whom the Belasco Theater on uh, 44th Street is named, did a play once in which he took a restaurant. There was used to be a chain of restaurants called uh, Child's. I think it was a chain. Um, But he dismantled an entire Child's restaurant and reassembled it on stage. And they, you know, they were like cooking during the play. So you'd be sitting in your seat and you'd be smelling, you know, whatever, you know, waffles, soup, you know, whatever it was. So it was a different kind of flash. And that was a real novelty. I mean, actually, it would be a novelty today. There's another image in the book. It's more like a rotogravure kind of thing, but it's of the the Madison Square Theater, which is long gone. Um, But it had what amounted to a double stage. um, And it worked with... uh, you know, what would be our equivalent of hydraulics. Um, And that was very innovative for the 19th century. Um, That was also the first theater to experiment with air conditioning and seats that folded up. I mean, we think of that as sort of, you know, normal and everyday. But it wasn't in its time. It was considered innovative Hmm. in the 18-whatever, 1880s. It's one thing, Leonard, to have a photograph. It's another thing to know the story behind that photograph. You obviously include stories behind these photographs in the book. I would imagine that research must have been pretty painstaking. You mentioned using publicists to track people down, but what else did you do? Um, Read. (laughs) Read a great deal. Um, But I also tried to solve some mysteries. You know, you... You find a source for information. You'd find an image. You want to know something about the background of it, right? You Google, you know, you poke around, you look at... I have a pretty extensive library at home. But occasionally you um, come across a second source which doesn't quite agree with the first source. So these things become, you know, almost unintended mysteries. And then you have to try and, you know, suss out where the truth is. And occasionally I would come across one of those and I would, you know, I would refer to it in the book. Here's a great example. There's an image of the book that's slightly out of focus and it's of a clay 
mask. It was in one of the binders that I received at the very, very beginning of this project. Um, and it's a little hard to describe, but it looks like it has wavy hair. And it's, you know, it's clay. I mean, it's sort of odd looking. It looks like it's got almost like a... Uh, like a rabbinical or clerical collar on of some kind. And um, all it said was uh, Moscow Art Theater. Now, the Moscow Art Theater, which is what brought Stanislavski acting what we would today consider more like the method, you know, to this country. Um, there were two tours in the 20s. And I could not find a source to explain this image, or for that matter, what I now understand as a mask, um, to save myself. I also wanted to know who took the shot, because it's it's the only one of a clay mask in the book. Um, and um, a, a really good example is the Russian man who took the photo. Um, he goes under like three different names. And I didn't know anything about great Russian photography. Um, and so that, you know, A, I had to find out what the mask was about, and that's in the book. B, I had to find out who shot it. C, I had to find out, uh, you know, much as I like the photo, why did it belong in a book about, about Broadway? And so through research, I was able to connect all of those dots and, you know, include include it for that reason. But in terms of, like, the first source and then the second source, things were not agreeing. Um, and I found that um, people had uh, people had different impressions also of what the appearance of the Moscow Art Theater in the U.S., U.S. tour in the 20s meant to Broadway, to the American theater, so forth and so on. Like, it's 80 years later, and they're still talking about what a watershed event th those tours were. And so, in a way, it all sort of gets wrapped up in this one, you know, mildly creepy photo. I think that one of the other reasons why I included it in the book is that, you know, Broadway doesn't exist in a vacuum. No theater exists in a vacuum. You know, the influence of Europeans, the, in, you know, influence of the East, um, you know, the influence of other parts of this country, um, you know, all plays a role in the melting pot. And if Broadway is in the middle of this melting pot, you know, obviously there's got to be an effect. How long, Leonard, have you loved Broadway? Gosh, I don't know. I came out of the womb singing show tunes. Um, <laughs> I went to see a play called Night Mother in April of 1983. I was not quite 15. And... Um, with my with my uh, friend and we um you know we were blown away I mean I don't know 15 year olds to go see a play about suicide but whatever it was the 80s and uh, we went back to the stage door afterward um, and the play starred Kathy Bates and a really wonderful actress named Anne Petoniak and uh, and Kathy you know came out the stage door and gave us autographs and whatever and then we were waiting for uh, Ms. Petoniak and ultimately I guess the doorman of the theater said you know there are these two teenage boys waiting for you and Annie came down from her dressing room and brought us inside and you know spoke to us and then invited us back two weeks later to go stand on the stage and stand on the set it was an entree to a whole world that I don't I don't come from a theatrical family um, I'm certainly not particularly from a well-to-do family you know what I mean going to Broadway show it's a lot of money and you know all these other things and so it was magical, and I've always felt that I was really blessed to be able to not just see the shows and be a fan, but also have that entree backstage and have a, a sense of how it all works. And that, that made me fall in love with it from a completely different point of view. 
and I think that's why I could do a book like this because for me it's not just about being a fan it's about trying to find a way to show that these are not only stars and not only uh, not only great plays and playwrights and directors and craftspeople um, but that they are people and that they're devoted to what they do and that they get as much of a bang out of presenting those stories um, as we do out of watching them. The book is Historic Photos of Broadway, New York Theater, 1850 to 1970. Leonard Jacobs, thank you so much. Thank you. Historic Photos of Broadway is in bookstores now. Many big stars have appeared on Broadway through the years, but none shone brighter and sang louder than Ethel Merman. She had an unforgettable sound that wowed theatergoers for some 40 years. Author Brian Kello wrote a biography of Merman. I chatted with him about it. I'm sure there are many little girls here in New York City today with a dream of seeing their name in lights on Broadway. Right. Ethel Merman was once that little girl. She's a Queens girl. Oh, yeah, she was. She was born in Astoria in 1908. She had no performers in her family. She was just kind of struck by lightning, really, uh, with this amazing talent, this huge voice. Anything you can do, I can do better. I can do anything better than you. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. She was born Ethel Agnes Zimmerman. That is correct, with two N's. (laughs) When did Zimmerman become Merman? When she was getting going in her early, early career, she did club dates and sang at movie houses before she became a big deal on Broadway. She abbreviated it from Zimmerman to Merman because she just thought it was snappier. She was discovered while she was singing between films at Brooklyn's Paramount Theater by a Broadway producer. Vinton Friedley. He had heard about her. He was casting a part in uh, the Gershwin show Girl Crazy. And he came out to see her singing between the showings of the movie, and he was bowled over, and he took her to the Gershwins, and they played the three songs for her that she would wind up singing in the show. And, of course, one of them was I Got Rhythm. I Got Rhythm, I Got Music, I Got My Man, who could ask for anything more? She always said in later years when she was doing concert appearances, I Got Rhythm was the song that put me on the map. And it really did. What's so great about her first interactions with the Gershwins is the fact that George Gershwin said to her, if you don't like these songs, I'll change them for you. Oh, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Oh, she was stunned by that. And who wouldn't be? I mean, uh, I, can, I can give you the names of many composers who would not say that. <laughs> you know, change one note and you're out. How would you describe Ethel Merman's style? Outward, just thrown, hurled at the audience. Electric, energized, jubilant. Life is just a bowl of cherries. Don't take it serious. It's too mysterious. The Broadway shows during Ethel Merman's days were not the Broadway shows of today. God, no. They were comedy shows, really. The books were nothing spectacular. There were a lot of pretty girls in costumes. There was a lot of salacious wit. They were not deep shows. They were not seriously dramatic in the way that Broadway musicals later became with the advent of Rodgers and Hammerstein and South Pacific and Carousel and things like this. Even Annie Get Your Gun, which she did in the 40s for Irving Berlin, was just a, it was a good old-fashioned rouser. And 
That's really what she did, pretty much, until 1959, when she starred in Gypsy. And Gypsy, of course, was a show in which she introduced so many great songs. Everything's coming up. Roses. You'll be swell. You'll be great. Loved that show right from the get-go. Well, it gave her the greatest role of her career in terms of dramatic scope. She played Rose, this stage mother who pushes her children on the stage. Here she is, boys! Here she is, world! Here's Rose! There are varying opinions on how successful she was as an actress. Stephen Sondheim thought she was brilliant in the comic parts of the show. He admitted to me that he preferred some of the women who did the show later, like Angela Lansbury and Time Daly, because he thought they were real trained actresses. You either got it, or you ain't. Late in her career, Merman wanted to connect with the younger generation. Right. So she came out with a disco album. She did the Ethel Merman disco album. She doesn't really sing songs in any different way. They just kind of laid out in the disco tracks. was very concerned with staying alive, speaking of disco, when people would kind of question why she was doing some of the things. Well, why are you doing the love boat? Why are you doing an appearance on Batman? She would always say, well, it's good exposure. I need exposure. And she was very pragmatic about that. Brian Kello, the book is Ethel Merman, A Life. Thanks so much for coming Thank in. you very much. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. My thanks to producer Rashida Winfield. I'm George Boraki. Have a great weekend.